beauty is in the eye of the beholder. If that's true, what do you find beautiful? An early morning sunrise or a late afternoon sunset? Seeing leaves changing colors in the fall? Or watching grass turning green in the spring after the frigid winter season has passed? For you, it could be your favorite mountain range, your favorite beach, or it's the sheer thought of a relaxing afternoon, enjoying the slow pace of floating on a serene Arkansas lake. Beloved, God's creation is a cosmic art gallery. God's creation is a universal concert hall where his works perform its majestic symphony orchestra. That's why David declares in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. With its seasons, plants, colors, water, weather, animals, and stars, God has created a world. Think about it. A world that we get the privilege to live in that is pregnant with wonder and beauty. Friends, are you excited about summer ending and fall about to begin? Okay, okay. I know I am. Football season? Must be a bunch of badminton fans in here. Flannel shirts? This tops them all, though, fall-scented candles. (laughs) But before we know it, winter will be here. And then we'll find ourselves eagerly looking forward to spring, won't we? And so this cyclical anticipation of longing between seasons year after year continues. Friends, that anticipation in our hearts between seasons, it has been put there by God. He creates every season with its own rays of excitement, each season with its own enjoyments of beauty to look at and beauty to look forward to. That's why the psalmists don't give Mother Nature or some cosmic evolutionary accident the credit for seasons. No, the psalmists give God, our creator, the credit for this cycle of seasons. Think, for example, Psalm 74 Verses 16 and 17, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Or consider Psalm 104, verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. Or you may recall the Apostle Paul when he was speaking with unbelievers that thought he was a god sent from the gods. And he had to remind them that, no, the the God you keep ignoring, the true God, he's the one who's blessed you in every season of your life. Acts 14, 17, yet he, God, did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But beside the created 
physical world, he also made human beings in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And throughout Spirit-inspired Scripture, some men and women, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this, are actually described in the Bible as beautiful and handsome in appearance. Think about some of the most well-known women you've read about in the Bible. Sarai, before she becomes Sarah, was beautiful in appearance, Genesis 12, 11. Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, Genesis 29, 17. Abigail was beautiful, 1 Samuel 25, 3. Bathsheba was very beautiful, 2 Samuel 11, 2. Tamar was beautiful, 2 Samuel 13, 1. Esther was a young woman who had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, Esther 2, 7. And in Job 42, 15, the scriptures say that in all the land, There were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Now, there are more beautiful women in the Bible than I think handsome men, but God's Word does speak about a few men that are handsome in the Scriptures. Think of Joseph. He was handsome, Genesis 39.6. Saul was handsome, 1 Samuel 9.2. David had beautiful eyes and was handsome, 1 Samuel 16.12. And notice even what is said of David's corrupt son, Absalom. We read in 2 Samuel 14, 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Physical beauty in and of itself is not evil. God's the one who made us. For we are fearfully and wonderfully made by him. But the problem with putting all your focus on physical beauty is that physical beauty in a fallen world simply does not last. In the grand scheme of time and eternity, physical beauty does not compare to an inner beauty that God creates in our hearts by his spirit. That's why we see the stark contrast in the book of Proverbs about what it means to think wisely about real beauty. For example, Proverbs eleven twenty two, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Make sure you don't put that in any of your anniversary cards, gentlemen. Make sure you quote the right text, not eleven twenty two. Make sure you read all of it, not just beautiful woman. But there's other things there. But listen to Proverbs thirty one thirty. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. It just means fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. In the same vein, the Apostle Peter picks up this same idea when he's encouraging Christian women in the first century who were married to either spiritually unconverted or spiritually unteachable men. And notice what Peter's emphasis is on when he's trying to encourage them of how to winsomely persuade their unbelieving husbands to follow Jesus. He focuses on an inner beauty. And I want you to also notice who the beholder is who cares most about this inner beauty. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 4, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word 
by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Get this now. Which in God's sight is very precious. You see, things that make up a society's culture, like music, arts, architecture, and the list could just go on, these are all in some shape or form displaying the manifold wisdom and beauty of God's creation, including those who are made in his image, human beings. You see, in the beginning, everything God created was good. And when he created mankind, the very crown of his creation, he said it was very good. Genesis 1.31. The Garden of Eden was truly a garden of beauty and paradise. When man walked with his God and enjoyed fellowship with his God and enjoyed all the good gifts of God. Think about it. A life of sheer enjoyment with no interruption, without ever experiencing guilt and shame or any sin in your heart. But when the first woman decided to listen to the voice of a talking devilish serpent, And the man and woman blatantly together ignored and disregarded God's voice. This perfect paradise was lost. The ugliness of man's sin entered into the world and disfigured and disrupted the beauty of God's created world. Because of mankind's rebellion against God, our work now in a fallen world is frustrating and difficult. Because of mankind's sin, childbearing, childrearing, and being married can be painful and disorienting between men and women. And even worse than that, because of mankind's sin, we are all now separated from this sweet fellowship with God. We are born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. That means we are deaf from hearing God's word with faith. We are blind from beholding the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's one and only begotten Son, instead of hearts full of wonder, full of worship towards Jesus, Our unregenerate hearts are often cold and callous towards Jesus. So friends, what will fix mankind's deepest problem? What does mankind most need? What will reform, renew, and revive what sin has made ugly? in God's beautiful world. Well, friends, we need a miracle. (laughs) We don't need a Band-Aid, this thing. We need a supernatural, miracle 
makeover that begins with God doing open heart surgery on us. We need a divine encounter in the emergency room with Jesus Christ as our soul's physician, like an oxygen tank for the lungs of our souls. We need the breath of life. We need the words of Jesus Christ himself. For when Jesus spoke, he spoke words of life with power. Oh, beloved, we need to hear, not from mere mortals, we need to hear from the immortal God. We don't need a word about some distant God who really doesn't care about our world. No, we need to hear the word from this God, the God of Holy Scripture. And friends, not only that, we need ears to hear his word so that we can hear it in a clear, convicting, and compelling way. We need in 2022 at 813 Fort Street as the Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, the same thing the people of Israel did in Nehemiah's day. Friends, in Nehemiah's day, the walls were now standing. They were strong and they were sturdy. Hoorah! But their spiritual lives were broken and they were in great need of revival and reformation. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 specifically, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8 this morning. Verses 1 to 8, and if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 229. Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you found your place in your Bible, if you're able, please stand in reverence of the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah. Hodiah, 
Maaseah, Kaleida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is God's word. Please be seated. And Jansen, could you go grab me another water? I got a feeling I'm going to need it. Thank you, brother. If you're taking notes, I have three main points in the form of a question and answer format that will serve as an outline with some subpoints underneath them. But we're going to take it one question at a time. Let's look at that first question together. Question number one. What does God find pleasing when his people gather together for corporate worship? What does God find pleasing when his people gather together for corporate worship? Here's the answer. God is pleased when his people gather in unified purpose with unified passion for the study of God's word. God is pleased when his people gather in unified purpose with unified passion for the study of God's word. I'll say that one more time. Thank you, Jason. God is pleased when his people gather in unified purpose with unified passion for the study of God's word. First, let's look at this idea of God's people gathering in unified purpose. Look with me starting at verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Uh, We know from Nehemiah 3, you don't need to turn there, but you can write it down. Nehemiah 3, verse 26, that the water gate would have been located on the east side of the city. Or if you save worship guides as kind of like a hobby now, like trading cards, you can look back at your worship guide from the Nehemiah 3 sermon, pull back out your map, the water gate will be kind of central east if you want to go look back at it. The square before the water gate would have been located... Logically, near the city's water supply, which meant this would have been a very central place for people to pass by and to gather for water for different purposes almost every day. But this phrase, all the people gathered as one man. Did you catch that? One man. That's a unique expression that we should highlight and think more about. And not only were they gathered in a very central place, place or location at the city's main communal life where a lot of people would have gathered regularly anyways, but they were gathered together with a like-minded purpose. Think about that. They gathered at one place for one unifying purpose. They gathered at one place for one unifying purpose. And this phrase, as one man, it really serves like an idiom. It's an expression for describing what it looks like when a mass of people 
are united as one. They were like a church or a ministry partnership that was in one accord, with one heart and one mind contending together for a common goal or mission. In other words, it wasn't like it was a one man or one woman show. Rather, the many came together as one. One team in one place, working, serving, living, loving, giving, gathering, and fellowshipping together. That means they weren't divided or separated with their backs turned away from one another. They weren't a fractured church made up of divisive cliques. They weren't a bunch of divided ministries that were an island unto themselves, disconnected from everyone else, doing their own thing on their own time with their own agenda. Rather, they were gathered as one man, a large group of people coming together in unity to form an assembly. That's what verse 2 says. Look with me at verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. The Hebrew word there in our English translations, it says assembly or congregation. It's the Hebrew word kahal. Can you say that out loud with me? Kahal. It's a very common word. It's translated in our English Bibles, often in the Old Testament, of course, as convocation or congregation, or here in Nehemiah 8.2 in the ESV, an assembly. In the 3rd century BC, a number of Jewish scholars began translating the Hebrew Bible into common Greek. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, what later we would see Jesus use a choice term from in Matthew 16.18 and Matthew 18.17, and that word is ekklesia. Can you say that with me? Ecclesia, which means an assembly, an assembly of the called out ones. This word would be used over a hundred times in the New Testament. This word is very familiar to us, of course. It's the word church. That's what it's translated into our English Bibles, church. Sometimes in Scripture, church is used to speak about the universal church, The universal church is all the redeemed from every generation that will one day join Jesus Christ together in glory. But the vast majority of the time, did you know that ecclesia, the vast majority of the time in the New Testament, is not speaking about the universal ecclesia, but a visible expression of the ecclesia, the local church. A church like Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. This is an assembly. This is an ecclesia. This is a kahal that Jews would have understood. And that's what the word church is really referring to. Very simply, a congregation, a gathering, or an assembly. If sometimes this week someone asks you, hey, what is a church? Or maybe you could challenge them, hey, what is a church? Now you know. A more expanded definition you could use, pretty simple though, 
The church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together in Christ's name, worshiping and submitting themselves to the rule of God together. For us at CCBC, it's the called out ones who are gathering and assembling at one place, 813 4th Street, Barling, Arkansas, as one man. But this wasn't always the case for God's people in Nehemiah's day, was it? Just recall how Nehemiah chapter 1 opened up when we began this sermon series. They were descendants of Jews who had been exiled, run out of their city, captured into slavery under the Babylonians, separated from their beloved homeland. And several generations had passed. In fact, 70 years to be exact. And then, in God's timing, he delivered them to return back to Jerusalem. But even since the first waves of exiles had returned, it had been a start and stop type of reformation process. It was only sparingly do we ever read of the people of God in this season of time as being united as one man. In fact, we have one instance in Ezra 3, verse 1. You can write that down and look at it later. When the altar in the temple was established, it says they gathered as one man. But as the years waxed and waned on, the people of God were still weak and fragile. They were still mocked and weighed down by the derision of God's enemies. They weren't strong. They weren't sturdy. They weren't steadfast and united together as one, at least, at least not yet. They may have been in close proximity. They may have lived near each other in the same community, but they were not strongly united in purpose yet. That is until Nehemiah, God's man for God's hour, had led them to this point. You see, by God's grace and God's timing under God's qualified leader, something sweet and special was beginning to take root in the soil of Jerusalem. A once fractured and scattered people are now assembling together as one with a unified purpose. No fringe stragglers. No casual latecomers. No, I'll come to church when life slows down for me or when it's convenient for me kind of church members. No CEO kind of professing Christians. You know what the ones I'm talking about. Those who attend church on Christmas and Easter only. No, they were all in. And they were leaning in to what God was doing in their midst. What God was doing in their midst together. You see, for months and months, with early mornings, ending in late nights, God was working powerfully in their midst. Think back with me over the last seven chapters of Nehemiah that we've covered so far. Under Nehemiah's leadership, these people have prayed together, lived together, served together, prepared to fight and defend their territory together. They even had a mind willing to work together. Nehemiah 4, verse 6. 
And because of God's sovereign and good hand, blessing and blessing more their efforts and sustaining their faith, they also had eager minds to gather together as one man. Members of CCBC, individually, we should all pray for God to search our hearts this morning. We should ask God if there is anything in our hearts hindering or prohibiting us from being all in in what God is doing through CCBC. That ought to be a prayer this week. Lord, search my heart to show me if I'm causing the body in some way or form to be slowed down, to be discouraged, to be frustrated, because of some hidden sin in my own heart. It could be selfishness. It could be a half-hearted devotion. It could be slothfulness. It could be pride. I leave that between you and the Lord, just like it's between me and the Lord. May we each pray that God would continue doing something sweet and special in our assembly. May we pray that God would weld our lives together with the blowtorch of the gospel asking that the Lord would infuse his love for us in our hearts in such a way that we grow deeper and deeper in our love for one another. Second, notice how they gather together in unified purpose with unified passion for the study of God's word. Look with me at verses 1 to 3. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. What was the people's unified passion around? Was it music? Was it committees? Was it traditions? Was it, I'm from Arkansas? What was it that they were purposely and passionately eager to do when they gathered together? Beloved, they gathered together to hear the word of God. They gathered together to hear the word of God. To listen to. To ponder anew to study intently, to meditate deeply on the word of the living God. They didn't gather together for self-help life tips to boost your self-esteem. They didn't gather together for cute stories and sappy poems. They didn't gather together for brief homilies filled with jokes and trite cliches. They didn't gather together for mere men's opinions or traditions. 
No, they wanted to hear from their maker. And who was it that wanted this? Was it just a small, select, radical few in the assembly? You know, a certain intense Bible study group? A really serious-minded Sunday school class? Or just the youth group? Or no, just the elders? No, look what verse 2 says. It was men and women and all those who could understand. That last phrase, all those who can understand, most likely refers to young children that were old enough to comprehend what was being read and taught at some level. If you want to read a parallel account to kind of see this played out in Israel, read Deuteronomy 31, verses 12 and 13. Deuteronomy 31, verses 12 and 13. Friends, I'm thankful that we have childcare for really young children So men and women, mommies and daddies, can sit under the word of God in the assembly, the ecclesia every Lord's Day. I am so thankful for the energy and enthusiasm and the kindness to serve our families of the really young children so that moms and dads can be even, to some degree, more focused than if they were having to, you know, play a wrestling match in the middle of a church service. But I'm also thankful for the young children that are here right now. I'm thankful for the kids that are sitting right now under the word of God at a very young age. Because I know for a fact that these young kids are paying more attention than we give them credit for. You ask them what the sermon was about, they might forget a lot of what I said. Some of it they probably should. But they are picking up on some of the songs. They're picking up on some of the illustrations. The Spirit of God will use the Word of God, the seed in the tiniest heart, to blossom into an oak tree in God's timing. Kids, I'm so thankful you're here. Students, I'm so thankful you're here. You are welcome. Again, this passage in Nehemiah 8 is soaking wet. It is saturated with God's Word being the centerpiece, not an afterthought the centerpiece of their assembly. Listen again. Verse 1, it was called the book of the law of Moses. Verse 2 and verse 7, the law. Verse 3, the book of the law. Verse 5 and verse 8, the book. Verse 8, the law of God. Why are there so many different descriptions? Well, it's just simply highlighting the source of where the word came from. Friends, the source of this book or this law was not from the local newspaper. It wasn't from some public school science textbook trying to reteach young children what men and women are and pollute some of their minds. No, it wasn't from a political candidate or even a Baptist preacher. The book or this law was coming from the one true and living God. You see, what they wanted to hear, get this, is actually what they needed to hear which is a wonderful blessing when you see people crave what God wants you to crave. You know what a dangerous spiritual sign is for a person in a church? You want to know what a spiritually dangerous sign is for the life of a church? It's when the vast majority of the people, or maybe even you here this morning, that you only want to hear 
what tickles your ears but does not prick your heart. Paul told Timothy, did he not? In 2 Timothy 4, 2 to 4, preach the word. The word of what? The word of God. Be ready in season and out of season. That means when everybody's coming and loving it and when nobody's there. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Oh, beloved, be on guard against a ministry that dances around topics in Scripture that expose our sin. Be on guard against a ministry, podcast, live stream, books, you name it. If that church conscientiously in their sermon series all the time is dancing around subjects, avoiding subjects that they know would expose controversial things that are clear in Scripture, stay away. It's not good for you spiritually. Did you notice in verse 2 how they told Ezra to bring the book? It's so subtle, right? Look at verse 2. So Ezra the priest, I'm sorry, um, verse 1. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. It's really subtle, but notice how Ezra is not forcing or manipulating the people to bring the book. That means God's word, it's what they wanted. They want God's truth. They want it loud and clear. They want it plain and simple. Give it to me, preacher. Friends, you know when God is working in your heart, when you begin to desire and love God's word without being guilted into reading it. You know God is working in your hearts when a pastor or friend, mom or dad, husband or wife, girlfriend or boyfriend, isn't having to remind you constantly to read God's word like brushing your teeth or paying your taxes. You know, hey, sweetie, kind of passive-aggressive. You know you ought to be reading your Bible. It's the right thing to do. Well, God's Word is the right thing to do. But friends, be very careful. We can create a whole generation of Pharisees if we're giving people the law without the gospel. We can put God's food on the table, but only God can give someone the appetite to eat it. So friends, let me give you an encouragement. If you're discipling someone right now for weeks and months on end, and they just don't want to read God's word, it is like a bore to them. They are in, they're just ugh, turned off by it. They never do the homework assignments. They never come regularly. It's just kind of a last-second thing they just do to scratch off a box. Friends, I just want to encourage you, pray for them, but move on. Find someone who's hungry. Find a kitten who wants to become a lion. And the lions will feed the kittens. Do not waste God's precious time in your life discipling carnal, unregenerate people. God gives his people an appetite for his word. And parents, pray for your kids. Influence your kids. Model it before your kids. But don't force something down their throat that God has not opened their heart up to yet. This goes for evangelism. This goes for discipling. We can present the food 
We cannot make them eat it. Only God can do that. Listen just to a sampling of what it looks like when God gives us an appetite for his word. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Job 23, 12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good in our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Friends, if your heart is dry and dull to God's word this morning, you know what my advice is? Stay with it. Stay with it. If you see someone running track and their legs are burning, you just say, well, just, just take it easy, buddy. No, keep running. You might be slow, you might be last, but you're still running. When you're lagging and you're slothful and you're struggling, stay with it. Find someone who seems to be passionate about God's word. That can be an encouragement to you, to pray for you. I would even consider this week, read all of Psalm 119. Now you might say, Blake, is that a short one? Is that one of those short ones? I'll let you figure that out this afternoon. Psalm 119, moving on. Friends, pray that every member of CCBC wants to devour God's word. Pray that men be carnivores who study the word of God and want the meat to feed their families, the women to be carnivores, no offense if you're vegetarian, to desire the meat of the word. To my non-Christian friend, if you're new to the Bible and you're kind of interested in being a Christian, take this advice from Glenn Scrivener. Quote, surround yourself with God's people and listen to God's word. Find a church, hear God's word preached and read it for yourself. And as you do so, pray, God speak to me personally. Show me Jesus. When we read the scriptures, every single one of us should be praying the same thing. God, show me Jesus. In Luke 24, do you remember that familiar account? Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appearing before different eyewitnesses, and there are two gentlemen on the road to Emmaus after dialoguing with men who he didn't, they didn't recognize at first. Luke 24, verse 27 says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And after dialoguing with them a little more, notice what else happened. Luke 24, 31 and 32. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, can, can you imagine? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Friends, have you ever experienced that? Sitting under the preached word and you just want to jump out of your chair and say, hallelujah. Or you're having a quiet time and you feel like you're having spiritual heartburn. It's a good heartburn, by the way. You don't need tongues for that. That's a good burn. Oh, to my non-Christian friend, do you want to know who your God is? God has given us the scriptures. Do you want to know more about your sin against this holy God? We look to the scriptures. 
You want to know about who Jesus is and that he rose into this life. He came down from heaven, died on a cross, and rose again for our sins and our justification and our eternal life. He did all of that for sinners like you and I, and we learn more about this Jesus and about what it cost him to die on the cross for our sin and about the hope we have beyond the grave in the scriptures. Friends, the Bible tells us, the scriptures tell us, God commands all of us to turn from our sins and trust in him. Maybe we should make it our prayer right now. From this day forward, in every quiet time you'll ever have, to my non-Christian friend, even today, this might be the day you first open the Bible, God, speak to me and show me Jesus. Speak to me and show me Jesus. He, by his grace, may very well open your eyes. Back to Nehemiah chapter 8. You see, if you put all the descriptions together in verses 1 to 8, it conveys that the commandments and teachings, they were words communicated by God to Moses, then communicated through Moses to God's people. This is called the Pentateuch. The word just simply means the first five books, really Genesis to Deuteronomy. Uh, Why is it called the Law of Moses or the Book of the Law of Moses? Well, it was given to that old covenant mediator, Moses, to be delegated and distributed at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. You see, this whole passage in Nehemiah 8 is resounding. It's an echo with the people of God groaning with hunger pains for God's word. The fireplace of their hearts had the logs ready to be burned inside as they would hear the scriptures read in their ears. Well, how do we know that they hungered for God's word? Look at verse 3 again. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate. Did you notice the next phrase? Oh yeah, this is that one moment that the Bible gives credit for long sermons. (laughs) From early morning until midday. You know in the Hebrew it means? When the sun came up and when it was really up. We're talking about 6 a.m. to noon. I haven't planned any church services in the future that will be 6 a.m. to 12, but you can pray for revival to break out, and if God's people want to hear it for six hours, you can be praying for that. But notice also, though, it says in the ears of all the people. Isn't that amazing? They were attentive to the book of the law. They didn't want to be anywhere else. Other things can wait. This was very important to them. It was the best day of the week. God is pleased when his people gather in unified purpose with unified passion for the study of God's word. Let's look at that second question together. These are shorter. Question number two, what does God use in order to make his people more beautiful in his eyes? What does God use in order to make his people more beautiful in his eyes? In other words, God is the omniscient beholder of all true beauty. What does he use 
to make us beautiful in his eyes? Here's your answer. God uses his appointed leaders to faithfully expose God's word to God's people in order to transform them. God uses his appointed leaders to faithfully expose God's word to God's people in order to transform them. Look at me at Nehemiah 8, verses 4 to 8. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aeneah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Meshel, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, and Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the, book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. In verse 4, you'll see a list of about 13 names of men standing with Ezra. They were probably some kind of helpers. We're not told explicitly. They came alongside Ezra with this massive assembly of people were gathered. They most likely assisted Ezra, like Jansen assisted me with his water. Ezra's throat probably got tired. They were near the water gate, probably took a little sip. Other people were reading, kind of divvying it up. And then in verse 7, there are another 13 names. Most likely these are Levitical priests. They are co-laboring with Ezra to help the people understand God's word. And then look at verse 8. We see them actually walking among the people. They're not just in some ivory tower, but they're grazing amongst the sheep, assisting Ezra's leadership in explaining and giving the sense. It just means giving the meaning of the reading. They are reading and teaching the scriptures paragraph by paragraph, breaking down the text. Friends, this is one of the primary places in scripture where we see the idea of expositional preaching. Can you say that word with me? Expositional preaching. It's when a pastor teacher exposes God's word to God's people. And that's what we're trying to do Every Lord's Day here at CCBC, we want to open the Bible. We want to read the scriptures, and we want to expound upon it to convey the plain meaning of the text. Beloved, I'm going to be honest with you, whether you know this or not, I'm not looking for pity parties or pats on the back. I just want to tell the truth. Expositional preaching is very hard work. It takes a lot of study and time, and focus, and preparation, and at the end of the day, the preacher is still 100% dependent on God to illuminate his mind by his spirit, and for God to illuminate your minds, those who hear the word by his spirit. Expositional preaching is really a massive step of faith. Every week, 
every week my flesh gets riveted to the floor because I realize I can't stand before God's people without being broken and prayerful myself. And I will never see transformation in God's people unless God blesses the preaching of his word. So to the members of CCBC, as your lead pastor, I covet your prayers weekly. Pray that I do not grow weary in the study of God's word. Pray that I work hard at preaching and teaching. Pray that I do not grow lazy or give you crumbs. Let me tell you a little dirty secret with pastors. Some of them will do that. They will take shortcuts in the study and give the people crumbs, but his soul will be dying in the process. I know pastors that have fallen. I know pastors who are really good in the pulpit, but they're hypocrites behind closed doors. It's usually because they've taken shortcuts with their soul. What did Jansen read earlier from 1 Timothy 4? Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Friends, pray that I don't become a sermon factory. Pray that my heart is moved by what I prepare for you. And friends, pray for every man and every woman that teaches a Bible study here. Any man or woman that breaks down the text of Scripture to expound upon it. That's the men's Bible study. That's the women's Bible study. That's the student ministry that's coming around the corner. That's the ministry to our young children. Friends, we should all aspire to be helpful in helping God's people understand the Scriptures. That's what disciple-making is. Christ followers helping other Christ followers learn and obey Jesus' teaching. Now, who is Ezra? I've kind of left him for the end. Who's this guy? He seems pretty prominent, right? He's the human instrument that seems to kind of take center stage in this massive assembly of God's people and God's word. Just a few things. Ezra is a priest scribe in verses 1 and 2. He wore both hats. As a priest, he prayed on behalf of the people, offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. As a scribe, he would have been trained in copying the scriptures and memorizing large portions of Scripture, and he was highly skilled in teaching the Scriptures. In fact, in Ezra 7, I'm not going to read the whole thing due to time. If you want to read more about how Ezra even got there, read Ezra chapter 7. I want to read one verse, though, that characterized this man of God. It's a good one to think about this week. Ezra 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Study, do it, and teach others. Friends, that's what we're all called to do. Study the scriptures for yourself. Obey the scriptures and then teach others. You want to be mightily used of God? That simple formula right there is pretty characteristic of most men and women who have literally shook the kingdoms of darkness by their faithfulness to God. Study the scriptures for yourself, obey what you read, and teach what you know to others. 
Ezra brought the scriptures before the people. Verse 2, Ezra read the scriptures for a long time. Verse 3, Ezra stood on the pulpit, the platform, the podium to be seen and heard by all the people. Verses 4 and 5, he opened the book in the sight of all the people. Verse 5, he blessed the Lord before the people. Verse 6, and then he led by example, which we'll look at more next week, by his teaching, by commissioning others to teach God's word alongside him. What does God use in order to make his people more beautiful in his sight? God uses his appointed leaders to faithfully expose God's word to God's people in order to transform them. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Question number three, and it's our final one. What does God find beautiful when his word is working? in his people. What does God find beautiful when his word is working in his people? If you're taking notes, these are really quick three subpoints, three things that characterize the people, at least so far. Number one, they were a ready people. Number two, they were a reverent people. Number three, they were a revived people. Number one, they were a ready people. Number two, they were a reverent people. Number three, they were a revived people. Let's look at that first one. They were a ready people. Did you notice in verse 3 when they gathered together, it says they were attentive to the book of the law. That means they were mentally, spiritually focused on God's word. Brothers and sisters, would that describe you? Would others say that you are focused on listening and studying God's word in your life? As an encouragement to you, you guys are a joy to preach to. Now, you might be putting on an amazing poker face, but you guys are engaged. You're attentive. It's easy to preach to people who seem genuinely interested in God's word. Friends, I just want to encourage you. I'm thankful for God's work in giving you that kind of attention. That's not something that comes naturally or normally for many people, and it is something only God can do. Number two, they were a reverent people. They were a reverent people. Now, we don't have to do this. I did it in light of the sermon this morning. But did you notice when God's word was open, what did they do? They stood up. That's really a posture of reverence, a posture of respect. Some of you grandparents are going, yeah, I wish my grandchildren would remember that. When they stood, they knew more than a man was speaking. They knew God was addressing them. Notice number three, they were a revived people. They were a revived people. Did you notice how they responded? They shouted, amen, amen, lifting up their hands with their heads bowed and their faces to the ground. What were they doing? They're agreeing with God. God, you're great. God, you're glorious. God, you're gracious. Their hands were raised as an expression of love and adoration. Their heads were bowed as an expression of humility. Friends, they hungered after the word because they were a teachable people. Did you see how the priests went before them and began to teach them? They wanted to be taught. Oh, friends, pray that CCBC would always be a teachable congregation. Now, from time to time, if you sit under my preaching long enough, you will hear me quote about once every five sermons from a Puritan author. 
instead of yawning and going, let me tune you out, and I'll bring back when you're done, I do want to challenge you to think a little bit about your history in Christianity and the history in this country. If you would like to learn more about the Puritans and their history in this country, you can read Horton Davies' book, The Worship of the American Puritans. The Worship of the American Puritans. You might say, what's a Puritan? Well, they were basically Christians who wanted to purify the Church of England. It's a lot of, lot of history to cover and a lot of ground, but basically they were Bible thumpers that cared a lot about the Bible and little about tradition. Now, we shouldn't imitate everything the Puritans do because they weren't perfect and they didn't get it right all the time. But there is one thing that they were known for that should challenge us. They were known as people of the book. Listen to Horton Davies characterize their custom. The Puritans of New England relished sermons as the nourishment of the soul and also as the iron rations of the serious pilgrim bound for eternity. They were prepared for and very often received on many occasions lengthy discourses so that their mental stomachs were stuffed. Cotton Mather preached a sermon lasting almost two hours. His own vivid, if smug, account reads, quote, The greatest assembly ever in this country preached unto was now come together. It may be four or five thousand souls. I could not get into the pulpit by climbing over the pews and heads, and there the spirit of my dearest Lord came upon me. I preached with a more than ordinary assistance and enlarged and uttered the most things, awakening things, for nearly two hours together. My strength and my voice failed not, but when it was near failing, a silent look to heaven strangely renewed it. Mather was given to being long-winded, some might say. Even on the day of his ordination to the ministry on May 13, 1685, he offered a public prayer lasting 90 minutes and a sermon of an hour and three quarters in length. Pruitt boys, what do you think about that? That's a long prayer. And this despite the fact that his ordination was delayed because he was a stutterer. The earliest New England ministers were not as long-winded, although they were not short-winded either. Thomas Shepard preached a sermon on one occasion, according to Edward Johnson, who was fascinated by him, that must have been over two hours in duration, since, quote, the hourglass was turned up twice. Charles Chauncey preached brief, concise, and pointed sermons on Sunday of 45 minutes in length. It seems that sermons lasting less than an hour were generally regarded as insufficient spiritual diet, even for those who listened to three sermons each week. Now, for better or for worse, long sermons are not better than short sermons. You can be long, boring, and terrible and be short and amazing. The length of the sermon does not matter all that much. But the content of what you preach does. And whether or not we want to be more like the Puritans or be like Billy Bob Baptist Church in Arkansas, the bottom line is we want to be a people of the book. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Without the regular diet of God's word feeding our souls, our joy in God will be quenched, we will spiritually starve, and we will be stunted in our spiritual growth. For the Boylstons, you know if Julie has been driving my Ford F-150. Do you know why? Because it's washed, cleaned on the inside, 
has a full tank of gas. Let's just say those things are not my love language. Those are not my strength. You can tell when someone else has been taking care of my truck because, boy, it is taken care of well. Friends, when you see a Christian who's had God's word penetrate their heart, they look washed, they look cleansed, and there's a full tank of gas in joy in the Lord. Friends, we have so much to be thankful for. As Christians, we have so much to look forward to, a new heavens and new earth, a place where we will one day be perfectly beautiful as a bride for Christ. But until that day, how do we continually cleanse ourselves from sin, be equipped for the work of ministry, focused on eternity and faithfulness to Jesus? Friends, Jesus tells us through the Apostle Paul that he sanctifies us and cleanses us by the washing of water with the word. A steeple, large pillars, and a finely manicured lawn might make a church meeting space look beautiful. But the washing of the water of God's word transforming the people's lives. That is a beauty that is precious in God's sight. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are truly the speaking God and your word washes and cleanses and refuels us for faithfulness. Lord, we pray that you would challenge each one of us for us to ask ourselves if we have any impediment in our hearts that is prohibiting us and hindering us and slowing down this church and what you're doing by not having this type of devotion to your word. Lord, make us more faithful, make us more useful. Lord, cause each one of us to set our hearts like Ezra did and ultimately like Christ who when Christ opens our eyes, our hearts burn when we hear the scriptures read. In Jesus' name, amen.